Um, as we have been singing, um, <clears throat> Lord, your presence has been here and been felt. Um, and God, I pray that as we continue in worship, as we open the word, um, Lord, may your words from so long ago speak to us. Um, God, may we be shaped more into you. May we um, be encouraged when needed encouragement. Can we be critiqued when we need critique? Um, and God, may we, out of all of that, um, again, be more shaped into your um, kingdom people. Um, and so, Lord, help us with that this morning. Open our ears and our minds um, to what you would have for us today. Um, so, God, we thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this past week, my daughter, who is five, Madison, um, she has, um, really since the age of two, which is pretty much her whole life, um, has been dancing. She's been wanting to do ballet and tap and all that. Um, well, this past week, <coughs> excuse me, um, she had two ballet intensives, right? Like, how, like, threatening does that sound? Uh, so she had two ballet intensives. Um, they were three-hour classes for a five-year-old. Um, yeah, right? Uh, and so, it's, which is the cutest three hours you'll ever experience, by the way. Um, and so anyway, we took her to that, and, and she started this whole um, performing company with her dance school. Um, and so going forward, um, she'll have these two intensives. She'll have two more, I think, jazz intensives, which again, sounds so threatening. Um, but she'll have those kind of things going. And then she'll have two practices a week. Um, for this performing company going forward, like we kind of realized all of a sudden it's this, we kind of ramped up the commitment level. Um, and I was reminded of, of thinking of this is, is, you know, because she not only wants to dance, but she wants to play soccer and she wants to do all sorts of these different um, commitments. And, and I was reminded of kind of the way our culture views those things, right, is, is so like, um, like that's where we find our identity is in these sorts of things. Um, and I think there's, there's certainly lots of value to them. One of the reasons um, we wanted her in dance or soccer, one of those things, which she's only doing dance right now, um, is, is having played team sports my whole life, I recognize the value of, of what you learn in those, those times. Um, teamwork, hard work, all that sort of stuff. Um, well, the one that we're kind of emphasizing with little Madison right now is hard work. Um, that is apparently a foreign concept to a five-year-old, uh, if we didn't know that already. But I, uh, a couple months ago, I had an experience with her, and she had, um, was playing in the living room, and I said, hey, you need to pick up all your stuff. We're getting ready for bedtime. Um, and she goes, Dad, I don't want to pick it up. That's hard work. And I go, well, yeah, it is. And she looks at me, no joke. She goes, but dad, can't I just get a boy to do it for me? <laughs> and I was like, oh, we are in trouble. Uh, let's teach this girl some hard work. So, uh, so anyway, all that to say, I was reminded this week of, of, of how our culture tends to value uh, these sorts of experiences, right? We want to be busy, busy, busy and doing this, 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 this. Um, and, and for us, our kind of family rule is that you really only get to do one thing per season. All right, so we're not going to do, we'll see how that works, right? She's five, it's easier now. Uh, but the idea is we don't want you in soccer and, and dance and all those things because we believe that there's, there's different values that we want to uh, kind of impose. And, and, and all of this to say, I was reminded that, that we live in a culture where maybe the way of Jesus isn't the dominant way. Right? Like we live in a, in a society where, where we have to be a bit distinct, um, that we'll do things that are maybe a bit different than the dominant culture. And that raises questions, and, and we talk to people about that, and we share about that. Um, one of the images from Scripture that, that we tend to draw, or the metaphor that we tend to draw, is when we read Scripture, we tend to identify with Israel in the promised land. Right, because Israel in the promised land, after they had kind of gone through the conquest and whatnot, they became the dominant culture. Right? And so we tend to, when we read scripture, we read it with the eyes that we are the dominant culture. But I think the metaphor that we need to revive a bit isn't that one, um, but rather is Israel in exile. 
Right, Because if you remember in exile that the Israelites, they're under the Babylonian rule and they had been dispersed. They don't have their own land. The monarchy's been kind of destroyed and they aren't the dominant culture. And so they have to approach public life and, and personal faith and religion and all that in a much different way. And I think that is maybe the metaphor as Americans, we have to kind of revive a bit. You know, there's that, that um, famous or popular passage in Jeremiah 29 where it says, seek the shalom of the city. Um, for in its joy or its well-being, you will be well off, right? He's speaking to a nation in exile who don't have a, a land, who don't have a, a, a government that is, is, is their government. They don't have a ruling party, all of that. And he says, seek the shalom of the city, seek the peace of the city, right? And so, so as we do this, there is a bit where we have to recognize that in doing so, we remain faithfully distinct, which is what I've titled the message this morning. That there is an element where we have to be a distinct community within the other culture. And that will cause conflict sometimes. It will cause a rub. And we have to walk through those stages. And how do we interact with a culture where the dominant culture views things maybe a bit differently? Um, and I would argue maybe less often than we think we need to wage war, but rather we stay faithfully distinct. We speak up, we, all those sorts of things, but we in all of that seek the shalom of the city. And, and what we're going to look at today is this, um, this letter to the church in Pergamum, and this was kind of their issue as well, as Jesus is calling them um, to, to be faithfully distinct amongst this different culture. Um, each week, I've kind of given a bit of a history lesson, and we'll do another one today, about what's going on in the city that Jesus is writing these letters to in Revelation, uh, and he's writing these letters to a particular place that's experiencing different times. And all of them um, are under kind of the rule of the Roman Empire. And so we have to understand they were coming from a perspective similar to ours, where they weren't the dominant culture. They had to live faithfully distinct lives. Or at least that's what God had kind of called them to. So in your Bibles, flip to Revelation chapter 2. And we'll dig in um, a bit this week. And I, like I said, we'll do a bit of a history lesson um, at first. And, uh, but this week, I brought some pictures. Uh, so it'll be like a bad family vacation, and we'll all gather around. Um, but they aren't my pictures. They're Google images. So lots of hard research Googling things, all right? Um, but uh, but here's, a, here's a bit about it. So it opens in Revelation 2, verse 12. It says, And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write... Okay, pause real quick. The number one tool I can give you when reading scriptures, um, the number one tool I've been given to read scriptures and investigate it more is you begin to question everything. Okay, why is this here? Why this wording? When you come to a, the name of a location like Pergamum, we do here, it is important to pause and say, what do we know about Pergamum? Um, is there anything in scripture about Pergamum? Is there anything historically about Pergamum that would illuminate the words that are to follow? Um, and so that's just kind of a freebie for you guys is begin to question scripture because that's how we dig to maybe some different layers. So a bit about Pergamum. I want to do it in two ways. I want to talk about the religious background and the political background, which is essentially what I've done the past two weeks. So Pergamum was an incredibly religious city. Okay, incredibly religious city. There were four dominant gods. There were many, but there were four gods who, um, who we will know that, that held kind of their center or their headquarters, if you will, at Pergamum. So the first of which um, is the goddess Athena. 
right? And many of us have known Athena from Greek mythology, uh, from history. That's a statue of her uh, on, the, on the left there. And then on the right, um, that is a recreation of what they believe her temple looked like in Pergamum. Um, I believe that one and then a few of the other pictures are taken from a museum in Berlin um, where they've kind of recreated some of this. Um, Athena was the goddess of war and wisdom, And so you would go, you would sacrifice, you would worship to acknowledge Athena as the goddess of war and wisdom. Now, the next god, um, Asclepius. Asclepius was the god of healing. Um, They created that statue in my likeness, as you can tell. Um, (laughs) That's a bad joke, I know. Uh, But anyway, so there's a statue of Asclepius. And then on the uh, the left there, there is um, the ruins of the Asclepian. All right. Now, Asclepius, the god of healing, he was, uh, for Pergamum, people would travel from all over the world to come to Pergamum to, to worship Asclepian. This was probably their most well-known kind of god that they were known for. And so what you would do with the, uh, the god of healing here is if you were sick or something was ailing you, you would go to the Asclepian, okay, that little, that, the ruins there on the left, and they would put you in a hospital-like room. It was essentially a hospital. Um, You would go there and they would um, give you some sort of substance to make you fall asleep. The idea was you would fall into this deep sleep. You would have a vision of how to be healed. You would then wake up, tell them. They'd say, okay, do this, 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 and this. And then you would either be healed or you wouldn't be healed. All right, now, if you were healed, and you can see this medical connection, right? Uh, Let's go to the next slide. Um, If if you saw the, the statue, he had a staff with a snake. Okay, that is where you see that in our medical symbols now, right, in our hospitals. That is all going back to Asclepius, right? So that symbol there, that's where it comes from. Asclepius means snake, right? And so that's a bit why, why that's there. But what you see at the bottom picture there is if you were healed by Asclepian, you would create a sculpture of the body part or whatever it was that was healed. You would then take it back and offer it as a gift to Asclepius, Right, so there are actual, um, again, at some museum, those are actual body parts they found that were gifts to, um, again, creation, sculptures, not actual body parts, um, actual sculptures uh, of that that were offered to Asclepius. And so this was one, again, of the kind of um, dominant, like, world center headquarters um, in Pergamum. The next god, Dionysus, the god of wine and fertility. Um, the god of a good time. Um, but uh, Dionysus, you can see those are the ruins there. And if you look kind of in the back portion of it, um, that's the ruins there. What, the reason I chose this picture is on the right, you'll see what looked like stairs. Um, that is actually the Pergamum Theater. Okay, the theater that was right next to the ruins, we'll get to, um, sat 10,000 people. Okay, massive. It overlooked, it was on the side of this mountain, overlooking about 900 feet above kind of the floor of, of kind of the rest of, of, of the world there. Um, and, uh, and so right there was the theater. And so what would happen often is, is the theater would hold a play or would do something kind of you know, memorializing Dionysus or the gods or what, what have you. And uh, after that, you would go down onto kind of the stage and the stage would rotate and would become the entrance to Dionysus's, Dionysus's um, temple. Right? And so, so right there, kind of in the back was the temple. They were, they were juxtaposed intentionally. They were supposed to be right next to each other. And what you would do then is you would go and you would just have a massive party, all right? You would drink all sorts of wine. And the idea was that you were drinking in the spirit of Dionysus, which is fascinating when we get to Corinthians. And Paul says, we don't get drunk on wine like that, but we are filled with the spirit of God. 
Um, interesting side note. Um, but anyway, so they would drink this wine as kind of an honoring. Um, these, as you can imagine, um, these parties tended to be a bit loose with their sexuality, um, a bit promiscuous. And so um, that was kind of the god of fertility as well, is uh, there would be all sorts of different activities that would go on. I'll let your minds figure that out as well. Um, and so there's a statue of Dionysus there as well. Um, so we have Athena, Asclepius, um, Dionysus, and then lastly, the one I know we'll all recognize um, is Zeus. Right, Zeus, the king of the gods. Um, again, the, the, the bearded bust of Zeus. That's why I have a beard. Uh, makes me feel stronger. Uh, actually, I just looked like I was 12 if I didn't have it. So, um, But uh, there's Zeus, and uh, Zeus had this throne. So up on um, this hillside that Pergamum was, they created this. This is the altar, um, or a recreation of the altar in the same um, uh, Um, I'm sorry, the same museum that's in Berlin. I should have put a picture with a person in that picture because this altar is massive. Um, It's hard to really understand. On the two sides, you see those like sculptures built into the wall. Those are are, like life-size people. All right, in that. So, I mean, it is a massive, massive temple. And this was located on the side of a mountain, and it would overlook um, kind of, again, the, the kind of the whole known world or the surrounding um, you know, area. And if you looked closely, I mean, you can kind of see from this picture, but if you saw a picture from above it, you'll notice that just the altar, okay, this isn't the temple, just the altar, is a U shape. You can kind of sense that there. It was created in the design of a throne. Um, because the idea was if Zeus is the king of the gods, he must be massive and must be big. And so he needs to sit on his giant throne on the side of a mountain and rule the world. Right? And so, so that, that's kind of placed there on, on, the, on the side of the mountain. And, and again, this is kind of the climate, the religious climate of Pergamum. And you would walk through downtown. And again, this is just some of the kind of the four more well-known gods. Um, but you would walk through the town, and, and you would be surrounded by these temples and these altars. I mean, think of like walking around you know, a downtown of a big city, and you see these buildings. You would be, oh, there's Athena's and Dionysus and Asclepius and Zeus. And, and it was just kind of surrounding you. This was the culture. Well, um, not only were they a religious, um, you know, religiously powerful um, city, but they were also um, politically um, very loyal to Rome. As I've talked about in, you know, when we looked at the letter to Ephesus, the letter to Smyrna, um, those three cities, Ephesus, Smyrna, and Pergamum, um, were in a sort of competition to be the most loyal to Rome. Right? And we, we kind of wonder, why would you do that? Well, if you are the most loyal to Rome or to Caesar, who is the most powerful, the most wealthy, um, has the most status, all of that, well, maybe then you know, Caesar or Rome would give a bit of a kickback um, to you in your city. And so they would compete to be the most loyal to Rome because they figured maybe they'll give us some money, they'll do something great in our city, or maybe if someone attacks us, the might of Rome will come down. And so they would, they would kind of be, be dedicated to being loyal to Rome. And so what happened was um, early on, Pergamum, it seems historically, was kind of winning that battle. Ephesus, if you remember I mentioned, um, they would kind of take over a little later um, and would become a much bigger kind of prominent city. Um, but Pergamum began to kind of like win the day, if you will. And uh, in 29 BC, um, the emperor Augustus, uh, right, he was kind of the, the first emperor, the first Caesar. He um, allowed Pergamum to build an altar to him, uh, which is crazy that, hey, just build an altar to me. Um, but he built an altar to himself in Pergamum, right? Uh, I didn't have a picture of that one. I should have brought one of the next guy I'll talk about. But a little while later, Emperor Trajan, um, he had a temple built to himself um, as well. And so that was established in Pergamum. 
And these emperors, right, they begin when they popped on the scene would speak of themselves um, because of how powerful they were. I mean, they ruled pretty much the known world. Um, They spoke of themselves as the sons of the gods, right, that were coming to bring a universal peace and prosperity, right? Familiar language to Christian ears, right? Um, They would say things like we've mentioned the past couple weeks that they would say Caesar is Lord, right? They would say Caesar is Lord. Well, for the Christians, you can already imagine this poses a bit of an issue, doesn't it? Well, one of the things that Rome did to kind of continue to, um, to have this kind of prominence is that they gave um, the, the proconsul or the governor of kind of the, the, the larger Asian area um, lived in Pergamum. They stationed him in Pergamum, and they gave him the right of the sword, okay? And so the right of the sword essentially meant that he could um, implement the death penalty for any reason at any time. Um, it didn't have to be, you know, generally it would have to be referred back to Rome. There'd be a trial and that sort of thing. Um, but the rule of the sword um, in Pergamum meant that he could implement it whenever he wanted, right? And so, so you can see this, this kind of this church then pop up, and they're living amongst all of this. And Jesus' words that we're about to read are a bit of like, you have to be distinct from this. All of this is going on around you. You you are not the dominant narrative. This is, again, about 90 years or so after Jesus' death. So the church is small and is is this kind of new upcoming movement. And they're saying, remain faithfully distinct. Well, let's read read the words. Let's read the whole letter. Um, I have it up on the screen, and and maybe we'll see if if some things maybe come to life a bit more now that we've uh, kind of unpacked a bit of the history. Um, So Revelation 2, chapter 12, and we'll read through verse 17. It says this, and to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you and where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone with a new name written on the stone, and no one knows, I'm sorry, a name that no one knows except the one who receives it. So right off the bat, right, he says, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. He says, you think the governor has a sword? Well, I have a sword as well. There's a bit of a bravado to it. It's, it's Jesus saying, listen, right now it seems like Rome is in charge, like they hold all authority and all power. But Jesus says, listen, I've got a two-edged sword as well. He says, I have power and authority. Right? And thankfully, this is a God of grace, not so much coercion and violence. He says, I have this two-edged sword. And he goes on, he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I think Jesus is connecting, and there's all sorts of questions through most of this. Again, I don't in no way claim that this is the, the only interpretation. It's just where I come from. But I think when he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, I think he's drawing a direct link to this giant throne for Zeus. He's saying, I know where you dwell. He says, I, you dwell where all of these gods, where, where Satan, remember, Satan means just adversary. 
right? Some think it could be a, a, an actual person, and maybe I'm not denying that, but I think there's also a bit in Scripture where we see it used as kind of a personification of um, the evil things, the, the spirits going against us, the adversary, right? He says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. He says, yet, and this is what he commends them. He says, yet, you hold fast to my name. You found a way to stay faithful to Jesus, he says, amongst all of this, he says, you remain distinct. You hold fast to my name. And he says, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Okay, we don't know a whole lot about Antipas. The most we know about him is actually right here. Um, Antipas, we can assume, is a believer in the church who was killed for, for the way of Jesus in Pergamum, uh, most likely probably because he wouldn't declare the things about Rome that the city was. Um, the fact that one individual is noted here probably tells us that like, this kind of activity where believers were killed wasn't too widespread yet in Pergamum. Um, okay, it wasn't, you know, in, uh, in uh, Smyrna last week, we, talk, you know, we talked about how the whole church was being oppressed, that it was all of them were kind of continually under the threat of death. Um, here, it looks like it hasn't spread yet to Pergamum, um, which is why, again, only one is mentioned. But he says that, that Antipas, his faithful witness, was able to, to hold strong Right? He's able to, to remain faithfully distinct amongst this whole culture. Right? And so he encourages them and says, continue to do that. Hold fast. But he goes on in verse 14. He says, but a few things I have against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. Okay. Again, we see names of people. We ask, what do we know about these people? Balaam, if you remember, back in Numbers 22, I think 22 through 25 is the, the text if you want to go back and read it. Um, but Balaam was hired by King Balak, okay? And, and Balak was nervous that the Israelites were going to walk through his area, okay? A massive nation was passing through his kingdom, and he got nervous that he was, they were going to overtake his kingdom. And so he hires Balaam, who's essentially a sorcerer or prophet, to curse the Israelites, well, God kind of shows up and says, Balaam, you're not allowed to do that. And so he works with Balak and says, well, this is the plan, right? And so Balaam goes to Balak, which doesn't help that their names are almost the same, right? But Balaam goes to Balak and says, hey, the way that you can um, you know, block the sons of Israel, it says there, is, is if you kind of entice them with the women of Moab or you, you, you worship your pagan gods around them, some of them will get caught up in this. Right? Some of them may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Right? And so, so Balaam is this, this guy who, who is essentially luring away the Israelites saying, hey, it's okay, you're the people of God, but you can still participate in this. That's okay. You could still partake in these pagan you know, services, and that's, what, that's okay. Or you can still, you know, whatever it is. And he was slowly kind of enticing them, eroding them from the inside out. Well, he goes on. He says, uh, uh, so that they may eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Now, I believe, and what most um, scholars that I draw from would say, is that the Nicolaitans are the same as those who hold to the teaching of Balaam. I think Jesus is, is speaking of the same group of people here. Um, the Nicolaitans, if you remember in um, chapter 2, verse 6, um, they, they were in Ephesus as well. And in, in chapter 2, verse 6, in the letter to Ephesus, it says, Yet this you have, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. 
Because the Nicolaitans, again, was this group, like those who were holding the teachings of Balaam, were drawing people away from the, the, the church or the way of Jesus. I think they're there and they're saying, listen, it's okay if you worship Asclepius. You're in pain. You're hurting. Go to the Asclepian. It's okay. You can worship that God in the way of Jesus, or, or you can worship Dionysus, or, or you can bow down to Caesar. Listen, your life hangs in the balance. It's okay. You can do both. And what we see is this, this group of people within the church who's trying to accommodate their beliefs and, and say that it can mesh when at times there, there are things that we must remain distinct in. Right? We remain faithfully distinct. Now, that doesn't always mean we go to war against our culture. I would argue that to seek the shalom of the city, we have to find maybe creative solutions to things when it doesn't go the way of policy or go that way. And that's essentially what, what this church is going to have to figure out is how do we live in this culture in a, a sort of exile and live faithfully distinct to the way of Jesus? He says, because some of you are beginning to erode. That's not the dominant narrative. And, you know, I think for us, and I want to bring this maybe a bit closer to home, is, at least for me, when I read about Greek mythology or when I studied as a kid, um, I used to think, man, how barbaric, right? All these different gods, these statues they create and, and they bring sacrifices. And, and we tend to look at that and we're like, we don't, that doesn't, how does it relate to American culture? That's not us, right? Like we don't have these statues that we worship. Um, well, I would argue again that, that this is probably maybe a bit more close to home than we realize, um, so what I, I want to do is maybe offer a bit of a critique of American culture um, to an extent. And I want to preface it by saying that I love this country. I'm so grateful for the freedoms we have. But I think it's, it, we have to recognize it's not perfect. Right? It's not perfect. And there are things, that, and all because it's not the kingdom of God, and it's not our task to, to turn America into the kingdom of God, but rather be distinct within the culture, Right, that there's a bit of a critique that we have to um, adhere to. So um, I brought a quote by a guy named Walter Brueggemann. He's an Old Testament scholar, and he wrote a book, Mandate to Difference. And in that book, his whole thesis is inviting the church to live kind of a distinct life, to use my, my language, to live a distinct life within the culture. And so he says this. It's thick, and we'll break it down a bit. Um, but he's, he's using this analogy of a script. He's saying that all of us live by a certain script that is kind of pulsing through American culture, and whether we want to believe it or not, it's, it's kind of what's fueling, it's, it's our worldview, might be a better way to say it, um, right? And he says it this way. He says, the dominant scripting of both selves and communities in our society for both liberals and conservatives is the script of therapeutic, technological, consumer militarism. We'll get back to that phrase. That permeates every dimension of our common life. It is difficult indeed to imagine life in our society outside the reach of this script that is everywhere reiterated and legitimated among us. Right? He says that, that kind of pulsing through our culture is this script, and he uses these four words. He says that is therapeutic, technological, consumer militarism. All right, let's break that down. So therapeutic. All right, what he means by this is that there is in our culture this sense that whatever ails us, whatever ache or pain we have, we can cure it. And we can cure it through the next product. We can cure it through satisfying or maybe numbing our brains through entertainment. We can cure it. Whatever it is, we have the resources to cure it. And we exist to cure our ails. Right? And so he says that, that there is this therapeutic kind of nature. That sounds a lot like Asclepius, doesn't it? 
That the, maybe the way we worship Asclepius is we see our ailments as a way to, to come and, and we can worship at the altar of entertainment or consumerism or, or whatever it is that we can find ways to, to, to all of these pains that we experience, we can cure them through the resources that we have available. He goes on, technolo- technological. And I, I would connect this a bit with Zeus, but what he's saying is that technological means that, that we've bought into kind of the lie of modernity that we can solve anything. That if we haven't figured it out, just give us time, we'll get there. That, that as humans, we have all the answers. And we can do it by ourselves. We can figure out the answers. And again, that sounds a bit like we think we're kings of the gods, if you will. That we can, we can worship in this sense that we have the capability because of our technological advances to solve every issue we may have. Um, the next one, consumerist. Right, again, this is, we live in a culture where, where we will spend, um, where we are just 5% of the world's population, but we use a quarter, 25% of the world's resources. Think about that. We are 5% of the population, but we use 25% of the world's resources. This is why we go berserk on Black Friday, right? Like we just go nuts, right? Because we have all of this wealth and availability that, that one of the lies we've maybe bought into is that that will satisfy our needs. This sounds a bit like Dionysus, does it not? That we can kind of go off and do all sorts of these, these, these different things with all the money we have. And, and we think that we, you know, we're constantly bombarded with, with, um, with these ads and everything that tells us that we're not complete unless you get this for $19.99, right? Or whatever it is. Like think about the effects of globalization. Right? Think about the effects that, that we can then set up our world in ways where, where we get things cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. But it's devastating people across the world because it's not enough to, to provide an ample work environment. Right, these are issues that we have as a church have to say, how do we live distinct in a culture where this is kind of the narrative? Right? And then the last one, militarism. Right? We will spend um, almost, ironically, almost the same amount that we spend on Christmas, which is $600 billion. We have a national budget for our military of $600 billion. That's more than the next seven countries combined. Right? Like, like we just have to recognize this is the culture we live in. Like how do we live faithfully distinct within this culture. And what Brueggemann argues is that the militarism piece is really we exercise that in order to protect our therapeutic technological consumerism. He says that we have the might, because we are one of the the strongest countries that's ever lived, to defend at all costs our way of life. And the issue, again, is, is, is how do we live distinct in this? And I'm not saying all those things are bad, but what I am saying is that through the way of Jesus, we have to process and filter that and put it in its proper perspective. That we have to recognize that this is going through and and pulsing through our veins, and it's a bit more close to home than we want to think, but how do we live distinct in this? Right? Think about um, maybe one other connection I'd like to make is, you know, the right of the sword. We tend to think of that as something barbaric, but but, um, since 1976, America has executed 1,437 Americans through the death penalty. There's a bit where this is our story as well, isn't it? Jesus is saying, listen, hold fast to my name. That as we take on the name of Jesus, the way of Jesus, we live maybe a bit distinct in this. And this impacts the way we spend our money. This impacts the way that we approach solutions to problems. This impacts the way that we don't necessarily remedy all of our wants, right? We don't buy into this therapeutic narrative, 
right? We live a bit distinct. It challenges us. Because listen to what he says in verse 16. It says, therefore, repent. Think different. Turn around. View the world in a new way. Have the eyes of Jesus. Right? Because we process then our political issues, our, our social issues, our, our work environments, our friend, our family engagements, all of that. We filter them through the eyes of Jesus. And again, I love that in the text, he doesn't necessarily say, this is exactly how you do it, Pergamum. Because I think if he does that, that creates all sorts of other issues. Rather, he says, as you go, as you repent, as you process through and hold fast to his name, Right, you're going to have to figure out what that looks like, and it'll be messy, and we'll make the wrong decision, and, and we'll take a step, and it was the wrong way, or we'll do something we didn't even realize we were doing, and it's like, oh, that's causing all sorts of damage. But instead, he says, therefore, repent. And listen to his next word. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. The them there is not the culture. It is not those outside the church. The them there are the Balaamites and the Nicolaitans. It's those within the church who were, were kind of compromising the way of Jesus, saying, well, I can do a little bit of this. Well, I can do a little bit of that and follow Jesus. I don't have to be fully distinct. And he says, I will come and I will war against him. And the sword of the mouth is generally understood as the truth. Right? We, we kind of see that, uh, I think it's in Revelation 1, the sword's coming out of his mouth. It's his words. It's his truth. And he says, I'll come and I'll begin to tell the truth about it. And he says, I'll come and I'll say that you're missing the point. You're not being faithfully distinct. You're not living maybe a subversive to the culture when it is needed. He says that, that think differently, repent, get into this maybe alternative way that Jesus offers, alternative to Asclepius and Zeus and Dionysus, that we don't take and consume without consciousness of maybe who it affects around the world, that we don't, we don't just kind of throw ourselves into to these issues thinking we can solve every problem we know. We have the answer, Right? We don't just kind of run in and, and, and we, we don't solve things by military coercion and violence. But the way of Jesus is the way of nonviolence. Like, how do we reconcile those things? Or how do we love our enemies? Or how do we lay on a cross and say, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do? Like, the way of Jesus is difficult and hard. And he says, repent. Think differently about the world. He says, be distinct. But I love that he doesn't leave us here, because look at the last verse here. He offers, again, three promises in this text um, to those that remain distinct. He says this. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the, to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. So he'll give us the hidden manna, the white stone, and a new name. Okay, the hidden manna, that should draw our minds back to Exodus, right? When they're walking around in the wilderness. This was the hidden manna. Um, was, was God told Moses to collect a bunch of it and put it in the Ark of the Covenant, right? And so Jesus says, I'll give you some of that hidden manna, what manna's role was to sustain the church in the wilderness, I think Jesus is saying it will be difficult, it'll be hard, you'll take a step, it'll be the wrong way, you'll try to be distinct and you'll fail, but he says, listen, I will keep you and sustain you. He says, I will give you the man, I will give you the strength to endure when you have to again describe why you follow this rabbi Jesus and choose to live differently. When you have to say, this is why I don't do that, or I do do this, or I process this, or, or whatever it is, like, when you get tired of defending yourself, he says, I will give you the hidden manna. I will give you the strength to carry on. He says, hold fast to my name. 
remain distinct. Then he says this white stone. And the white stone, if we're honest, no one really knows exactly what he's talking about. Um, the one thing I'll draw from it is in that day, um, the gladiators, when they would fight, they would get, if they won, they would get a white stone. And that white stone kind of functioned as a token of privilege. Um, for, for some, it meant that they would not have to fight again, um, which meant they wouldn't have to risk their life again. Um, which I think certainly we could draw some parallels to. Um, it, it would provide a few social privileges to them. It's so what I think is Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, the one who is able to be victorious in this, to remain distinct, I give you this token, this, this token of privilege to say that you will live on, might be the way to say it. And on that stone, there's this new name. And I think what Jesus is doing with this is he is saying that you will be then adopted into the family of God. You will have a new identity. You will have a new personhood in Christ. I think of Paul in, in Corinthians when he says, the old is gone, the new has come. Like anyone who is in Christ is made new. He says you will have a new name, a new identity, that your identity won't be in Rome. It won't be in the gods, you know, Athena and Asclepius and all those. He says it will be in me. He says, I will sustain you. Because I think if we're honest, it really, it's an issue of trust, is it not? It's an issue of do you trust Athena, Dionysus, Zeus, Asclepius? Do you trust Rome and the Caesars? Or do you trust Jesus? And it may go completely, like, it might not go the way you want. For, right, for, uh, for Antipas, it didn't go the way he maybe would have desired. For the church in Smyrna, it didn't go the way they wanted, but they remained faithful because ultimately the way of Jesus may lead us into trouble. Right? We won't necessarily escape. We won't be able to be secure behind whatever it is, but instead we follow Jesus knowing that that is the treasure and that that is going towards the new creation. Because it's an issue of trust. So church, do we trust the way that maybe the dominant culture in the America lives? Do we trust those things? Do we trust maybe those a bit more than Jesus? It's a challenging question for us. Because again, that I think is what, 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 what Jesus is saying here. Where does your allegiance lie? Does it lie with the gods and with Rome or does it lie with me? Because the task of the church, again, is to remain faithfully distinct within the other culture. Not, not retreat and escape to the desert and hide away, but rather we live distinct within it so we can renew it and bring reconciliation and healing. That is the way of Jesus. So church, my, my question for you is again, may we live this distinct way of Jesus. May we find ways today to take the next right step. And we may screw up, we may not know, we may make a mistake, we may make the wrong judgment that that's the way Jesus wants us to go, but we take that step trying to remain faithfully distinct. We take the little step and then we take the next little step. So church, will you pray with me as we close? <clears throat> Heavenly Father, Lord, God, we thank you for, um, God, the hidden manna, for sustaining us, for the white stone, for the new name. And God, may you challenge us this morning in the ways that, that maybe we've compromised. Lord, may you give us eyes to see the ways that maybe we've compromised and we didn't even know it. God, there is, there is a, a way of Jesus and there is a way that is against that. And Lord, I think easily they intertangle too much. And Lord, we may not even see it. So give us clarity. Give us discernment. Um, God, to see those things. God, may we live as exiles seeking the shalom of the city, seeking the goodness and the health and, and the, the prosperity of the city. Lord, that is what we hope to bring. And so, Lord, as, as we sing, as we go out of this place, Lord, may you embolden us. 
to hold fast. God, may you embolden us to live distinct, to, to remain faithful to the way of Jesus, even when it seems a bit murky on how to do that. Let's God be with us because we need your help. I thank you for grace. I thank you for your love that covers all of that. Um, and Lord, help us. Help us on the way. In Jesus' name, amen.